Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now this month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they can overcome those roadblocks. Today, we get to hear from two wonderful writers and friends, Hess Phillips and Sarah Johnson Allen. Good morning, you two. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. We are very awake. <laughs> today, sort of. Uh, just so you know, so Sarah's novel came out recently and Hess's novel is coming out upcoming. So I would look for both of these books because they're both marvelous. I, I already read Hess's book actually a number of times because she was in the novel incubator. Um, so Hess Phillips is a novel incubator graduate. Her debut novel, Lightborn, about a mysterious death of queer Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe comes out in the UK in May of 2024. And we are also looking for that book to come out in the US soon. Sarah Johnson Allen is a professor and author whose debut novel, Down Here We Come Up, was a winner of the 2022 Big Moose Prize from Black Lawrence Press. She is currently finishing a second novel and starting work on a, of creative nonfiction, an exploration of cultural and political history through personal narrative centering on her 17th century home in coastal Massachusetts. And if you're actually watching this, you can see the room behind Sarah has this lovely old, you know, 17th century feel. So we love that. Okay. Um, I can still take a couple more questions. And this is because I tend to group questions together. So if you've been afraid, if you're like, oh, I don't have anything important to say, just send me your questions. Um, you can send it in written form or audio form is even better, but you can do it either way. I can probably just take just a few more. So you want to get them in um, as soon as you can. Um, also, we have a new Facebook page, and that page is beginning to just grow much faster than I thought it would. Um, so I will put the URL for the Facebook page on the podcast notes. And you can also just search 7am novelist on Facebook. I know Facebook, well, I know they're evil, um, but we're using them for our own pursuit of goodness. Um, also in the chat, you can uh, echo any of the similar issues that you have that we talk about. And you can also throw out your own fixes uh, for the issues. And uh, then we get kind of a hive mind sense of, of treating these issues because we all share them. Um, I've had some people, you know, um, you know, because even now as I'm working, beginning to start my fourth book and I'm like, oh, my God, I have the same issues. I'm going back through the same thing. And I know every writer is the same way. You feel like you're kind of starting all over again and learning all over again because you learn each book as you write it. OK, today we've got uh three questions. They're all about revision. And so that's why we're doing them together. And they kind of overlap but I, one at a time. So here is the first one. And this is from Suzanne. Hi, Michelle. My name's Suzanne. I love these series that you do. They're always so helpful. Um, my question is about revision. I've written a couple of novels and I always get to this point of having to revise my draft where I'm so scared of taking it apart and I get this really uncomfortable feeling like, what if I can't put it back together? What if it just stays in pieces and never works? What if I'm actually making it worse? It's like this real psychological block where um, the idea of, of taking it apart just really freaks me out and I get kind of stuck. So. Um, 
I imagine other people have this problem and hopefully your guests might have a suggestion about that. Thanks. Okay. This is a very, very common question, a very common fear. Um, one thing to think about is what I actually have my students do is break their novels apart. And I call it the deconstruction um what, what, what do I call it? I call it the deconstruction project. And then we build it back up. So you, if you fear that you're going to break your book, the whole point in my mind, at least every vision is to break your book down. Um, and that way you can actually see how it really works. You can make it unfamiliar to yourself in being able to figure out what you need to do next. The great thing about writing, though, is that you never actually break anything because you can keep a copy of it <laughs> stored on your computer. And so if you actually do destroy it, you always still have it. It's not like you're continuing to paint on a canvas and you actually destroy the painting. Um, so that is I don't if you do fear that, just know that it's to me, it's like doing a deep cleaning of your house. Let's say that you have to take everything out of the closets. You have to take everything out of the attic. You're taking it all out. You're looking at it. You're seeing what you're going to keep. You're seeing what you're going to get rid of. Yeah, you're having your kids do the same. And so you've got basketballs running around or all sorts of sports equipment or weird, you know, little fancy dresses and stuff. But the house becomes a huge chaotic mess, probably why, while you're doing that deep cleaning. Um, and it's very difficult to know if you're making any progress. And it's very, very difficult to know, you know, that why did I even begin this in the first place? This is such a huge mess. But normally you have to go through that mess and that chaos in order to get through the other side. Now, Hess, I know, is one of our revision champions. Hess just would revise and revise and revise. Um, does this, is what I'm saying, does it make sense at all? Or, I mean, you can also say, Michelle, that's just not, that's not helpful. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, am I a champion or am I an addict? I don't well, know. You're also <laughs> champion. I'm not saying about, yeah. Yeah. I No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think everything that I could say to Suzanne would very much reiterate what you've just said so eloquently, because... I mean, in my case, I can speak from personal experience. I needed to take my book apart several times in a very big way before I really figured out what my book was about. Um, because I went into it with a preconceived notion of what I wanted the book to be. And I just had the hardest time in the world letting go of that. I thought that you know, this is this is the way my my Jenga tower is built and I can't move things around or it's going to fall down. But the thing is, it has to fall down, you know, um, in order to do anything else with it. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend keeping everything, just everything, every every sentence, even if you're the kind of person that likes to hold on to that. I, I actually have several um files several documents and, and word documents in my computer because i'm a word user <laughs> i'm old school um that are just clips that i've taken out from various uh drafts and revisions of um of my book lightborn and now the the next book that i'm working on too i keep everything and i use um 
track changes and the navigation panel in order to kind of keep a keep a list of all the different scenes um, so that I know I can go back to different versions if I need them in the future. Because, um, yeah, it will inevitably happen that as you're taking your book apart, you're going to find yourself either having to write something from whole cloth or missing something that was there before. So yeah, definitely keeping a hold of everything for the future is uh, is important, just having that hoard to lift from. But um, yeah, you have to rip the Band-Aid off, I think, um, which may, may not be the most helpful thing in the world to say, <laughs> because sometimes it's just so hard to do. Um, but yeah, in order to really... To, to get to that next step, sometimes you just have to push the whole thing over. Yeah. I was always the kid that stood on the high board forever as everyone just waited me to just jump the hell off. I just couldn't jump. Sarah, what do you think? Um, I couldn't agree more. I, I actually like the cleaning house narrative. I was going to talk a little bit about how I was like a word hoarder, like I hoard words. So like um, I just can't let go of things, but I recognize that I have to let go of a lot um, in order to make the work work. And so I will do exactly what you just said, Hess, is a, you know, I have many, many drafts. I have a document that I just leave open that says like cut from, and then I have the date of whatever I'm working on. And I just dump stuff there because the idea of getting rid of it um, is too scary. So, but eventually almost all of it goes. And I noticed a question from Judy in the chat saying like, well, what do you mean by taking it apart? And I think that means different things for different people. I uh, know we're going to talk a little bit, or two of the listeners um, referred to like just sort of different structural models. But I think um, Hess and I have this in common, I, I was realizing is that there are many, many versions. It took a long time to write this book right? For both of our first books. And it didn't take a long time so much because I was wordsmithing. It took a long time because I kept like completely redoing it. But you can't just like on a Tuesday, write a bunch and then completely re-envision it on a Thursday. Like there has to be months or years in between, which is a horrible thing to say, I feel like. But I did a count once and in 2019, I was on a conference panel. And at that point, I had done 70 like dated versions of my book. And I don't mean like, oh, I did a spell check. Oh, I did like a read through. I mean, like it changed. And to give Judy like an example, I think this can mean different things to different people. I'm not very structured. And so people were often in those early versions, like you need structures. I was like, okay, I have a, a chapter from the past, a chapter from the present, a chapter from the past, a chapter from the present. And then eventually it was like, well, all this past is not as important. Like I had to write it to get to whatever point I, I had to write it all to get to where I was going. Um, but almost all of it came out. There are entire, there are hundreds of pages of my book that are not there anymore, like at all. And as a hoarder, I allow myself, this might go with our third question too. I allow myself to keep them. Like the other day I was like, mm, that's a short story, which is not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. But I was like, well, if I rework it to short story, like whatever it, it could be. So, uh, but I think, what I did want to say, I like to pretend I'm a doctor or a psychologist, even though I'm definitely not, but I hear a lot of psychological stuff going on in these. And I heard Suzanne saying, what if, this is my last point, um, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if I can't, what if, and that, you know, obviously is like the fears that we have. But I also teach like creativity studies classes. And one of the most important things you do in creativity is you go, but what if, what if, what if, to push things. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that it, there, there's a lot of complicated um, definition. Not, there are a lot of definitions for creativity and the researchers can't decide exactly what it means. 
but it basically means like creating new and original combinations from something existing. So like when rappers like mix tracks with different sound bites, but they create a completely new art form. Um, and so I think that that, or uh, that another part of the definition is like seeing patterns that are already in something that's existing in order to solve like a problem and come up with something original and new. So I'm recognizing the anxiety in it, but also the like, this is part of the creative process is a breaking down and a rebuilding. And then how to do it is, is harder, I guess, or facing it is harder. I love that. I love that. And I, I oftentimes, uh, when my students have to do readings too, I, I remind them and I, and I remind myself that physiologically, um, nervousness and anxiety feels the same in the body as excitement. <laughs> it actually identifies the same way. So if you can also think of that what if question in the same way, it's both, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to do, but also an opening for a creativity. Um, you know, it's, it does, I think, become even scarier when the book becomes absolutely what it's going to be on the page. And there's a comfort in that, but there's also a closing down of opportunities there. Like you're like, okay, I guess this is the book now. Um, when I talk about uh, breaking down a book, what we, we do, and there's lots of different things that you can do, but I have my students break the book down by scene. Um, and this is after they have workshopped their book. So they, and they, um, they can, I, I give them different opportunities to, to do this, but the more traditional one is I have them break it down by scene and devote one uh, notebook card for every scene. Um, and write on that notebook card, what the scene is about, what the scene's purpose is, and also preferably a, uh, a tactile sensory image in the scene. So to make sure that it actually is a scene and not just a bunch of exposition. Um, and so they have, there might be a lot of scenes that they have already decided to get rid of after their workshop. They might be getting rid of a whole half of their book because it's just not working. Uh, and then there's the scenes that they know that they want to keep. They might need to revise them, but they know they want to keep them. And so I have them put that on a particular color card. They have uh, some scenes that they might need to dump and I have them put those on a different color card and then scenes that they haven't written yet, but have ideas for, or, or things that they have to fill in. I have them write that on a different color card. So that, that sound, and it's a lot of work. Um, and what it forces them to do is just get down into the nitty gritty, get down into the bricks and mortar of the thing to really kind of, again, break it apart so that you can see it anew. Um, and again, there's there's all sorts of different ways of, of doing this, but it's about um, going into the small stuff and, and, and well, and also getting a long view. I remember Shilpi Shah, who... Um, came out with a, a gorgeous book this last fall. Absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. When I had her do this project, I said, well, you have a lot of scenes. And she says, no, I don't. I don't have a lot of scenes. And then she started to break her book down by scenes. And then she, she called me. She's like, Michelle, I have so many scenes. I'm like, yes, you have a lot of scenes. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it depends on that. Um, also, when you go back in, um, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to the fact that Lauren Groff tends to actually throw out her early drafts entirely so that she's not too tied to them, because what it can feel like is that you're trying to take down a brick wall with a toothpick and you're just like tapping at it with your sad little toothpick and nothing's happening and you really need to tear that brick wall down. So you might need to just toss away everything that you have before. Now, most writers that that freaks them out entirely, it actually freaks me out, but that is something that you can think about. 
Another way of doing that is making sure that you have the book printed out and you also have it stored in your computer, whatever, but that you start at least with a blank, clean document as you go back in so that you're not simply fixing sentences or moving paragraphs here or there. You're probably going to need to do much bigger things beyond that. So um, let's go to yeah, the next I one because there's a lot more to talk about in terms of revision. I'm going to play Liesl's next. Here we go. Hi, Michelle. I have a problem. I'm two thirds of the way through a major rewrite. My strategy so far has been to follow the beat sheet and save the cat, mapping out sections scene by scene with note cards, and then writing them out. So sort of toggling back and forth between big picture structure and then getting down into the scene. I've been doing this for about 18 months. Generally, it's working in that it's keeping me moving forward with the rewrite. The problem is, at this point, I have no bird's eye view of the novel structure as a whole and it's making me very nervous. What if there's some big picture problem I'm not seeing because I'm too much in the nuts and bolts to see it? I'm afraid to stop and pull back to spend time mapping out the big picture because it feels like just another means of procrastination. And also, I have a fear of finishing. Maybe I'm just overthinking and should keep doing what I'm doing. Maybe I'm just neurotic. I don't know. Okay, and Liesl is not neurotic, I know her. And, and if Liesl's neurotic, I'm terribly neurotic, but we're all neurotic, right? Um, Hess, what do you think? And you were also gonna say something else before I move to the question, so you can add that too. Oh, yeah, um, so I, I was just, you know, it occurred to me that, yeah, I, I think it was Judy said something in the chat about what exactly do you mean by breaking down a book? And maybe maybe this kind of overlaps with um, Liesl's question, but, um, you know, yeah, I, I think depending on what you're working on, there's so many different things that that could mean. I mean, it could mean uh, picking a new point of view character or changing from first person to third person or um, taking out an entire storyline that happens only in flashbacks or something like that. So, you know, there are lots of different things that that could mean depending on what your project is. And any one of those is going to deconstruct the book in some way. Um, <clears throat> anyway, to, to go on to, to what Liesl was, was saying, um, uh, the thing that, that struck me as I was listening to her question is that she has actually done so much work to get a really good picture of the shape of her, her story. Um, probably more than I've ever had the fortitude to do. <laughs> I mean, the fact that she's got everything mapped out on note cards, that she's, you know, been blocking it in accordance to a particular story structure, like Save the Cat. Um, it seems to me like she's worked very hard to get to a bird's eye view of her story. Um, but it might just be that what she's doing isn't working for her for whatever reason. Um, because I have tried some of these methods in the past. I'm not very good at these things like note cards and story structures. And, you know, my, my brain just doesn't work that way. I get bored and I give up like not even halfway through. Um, so I think, you know, when you're looking, when you're trying to get a more, a, a kind of visual idea of the shape of your story, um, there are lots of different methods that you can use for doing that. And, you know, there are, there are programs you can use even. I, I know that some people make charts and graphs and all kinds of 
fun things. I've seen some that are color coded and really complicated. Some people make maps, which I absolutely love. I've always been uh, a big fan of the idea of landscape as story as opposed to, to edifice as story, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, it, maybe it's just time to, to try something new in terms of, of a, a system for organizing this. Mm -hmm. Sarah? Well, I love this one again, because I get to pretend to be a clinical psychologist, which I'm definitely not. So please take all of this with a grain of salt. Um, but if I mine as a writer, if I mine the language that uses like, what if I have a fear, am I neurotic, which I'm going to come back to the neurotic piece because it's coming up in the chat and it's a really, actually really important. But I feel like um, the fear of finishing is really, really real. I remember, again, I took these like two graduate level creative studies classes, like in the recent years, like post my other grad school. And I remember reading like um, about uh, particularly women have a fear of success and they will go to like large, like they will go to great extents to stop their success, including like, um, ha like having children, like more children. And I was pregnant with my third daughter at the time. And I was like, oh my God, that is totally like, I'm like, oh, it took me so long to write this book. Well, you know, I made some choices along the way, I, you know, and I had a lot of, I work full time and all these things, but I was afraid of finishing it. Like I was really afraid of, I didn't think I was, but I think I was, and I think it's normal. What I hear Lisa saying is I'm two thirds done. Okay. Cards, post-its, maps. I do love, I've done the mapping thing. That's can, anything that can break any cre in creativity, anything that can break you. If you've been posting and Excel sheeting all along, then yeah, flip to this like language. I think someone suggested that. And if you've been languaging all along, you have to sit down maybe with some index cards. But most importantly, and I think I've heard Michelle say this many times in many contexts on the show, is you got to finish it probably. If you've done all that structure and you've got, you only have a third to go, you finish it despite the fear. Um, I think also this is just kind of a, and then, and then you decide, and then you have to put it down for a month or two or maybe more, and then you can go back. And I think, you know, I think deep down, we know when something's not working, sometimes you need an editor, sometimes you need someone outside of you. But if you put it aside, I think sometimes, at least I can see it um, for myself a lot of times, but it needs time. And I also want to, I know we're short on time, but I would encourage people to interrogate the word neurotic. I've been in like fights with people about this, but <laughs> in creativity studies, which I'm obsessed with. So I'm sorry, I keep talking about it, but it gave me, when I learned about it pretty late in life, I, it gave me a lot of validation. Um, and in like the five factor personality model. And again, I am not a trained psychologist, but neuroticism is something that's like, you know, they, they test for, right? Like there's five factors of your personality and that's one of them. And really at its core, it just means a tendency towards negativity. Like I know if people are like over the top and they can't leave their house because they're, you know, like there's, there's like clinical diagnoses involved here, but neuroticism at its core is just seeing all these things that could go wrong. Right. Or like tendency towards negativity. Now, culturally, I know it's been used to sideline a particularly women um, for being hysterical and all these things. But I think most artists and writers are pretty neurotic as in they can see infinite possibilities. Like I was saying to a friend the other day, she, I don't want to give the specifics of what I was saying, but it was like all the bad things that could happen to my kid. She's like, you think about that every time? I'm like, yeah, every time. Every time I assume this horrible thing is going to happen. But it's not because I'm like, well, I am crazy, but it's not that. It's that my mind is full of infinite possibilities. Like if you ask me one question, I have 20 answers because I'm fluent in that way. My mind operates in that way. 
and they tend to be challenge-based or like conflict oriented, but that's like, so I just, maybe we are all neurotic. I think most, again, like, oh, I'm sorry. The social science research shows that um, artists and writers are particularly neurotic. Like 80% of um, writers in particular have like clinical mood disorders and stuff like that. So at least by one study. So the point is all these like negative feelings, they're not the end of the world. Your neuroticism isn't the end of the world, but you have to finish it. Like I never don't send my kid out because I can think of a hundred things that go wrong. They still go out. They still get in the car. They still walk down the street. So that's, I guess my point. This reminds me, I was, I, I, my probably favorite novel in the world is Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, even though I know she's a complete snob um, and there's other issues, but she always talks about Mrs. Mr. Ramsey thinks from A to B to C to D, and he has a very orderly mind and he's a philosopher and all the sentences that she writes about him have this kind of sense of order and they're very um, short sentences. They're, they're um, very rational. And then when she writes about Mrs. Ramsey, Mrs. Ramsey's mind goes everywhere at once, like a giant net um, that captures everything. And to, for Wolf's points of view, that was true creativity, to be able to think of everything at once. Um, and she, and that was really true genius um, in her mind. So I actually think there's something there that can feel like com complete chaos, but that's also creativity. I think they're just hand in hand, the same thing. Um, okay, so let's go, I'm going to go back to the, yeah, go ahead, Hess. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I jive with this so much. This is, um, I honestly, I think this is why we write <laughs> because we are so used to going about our day thinking of all the things that could go wrong, all of the confrontations that we could have, all of the people that might, you know, get in our way today. And it's like, we just have to get that out of our heads somehow um, in a place where we have a little bit of more control over it. So I, I really think that's, it's not just neuroticism, but it, it's part of the impulse as a writer specifically. Um, yeah. You yeah. wouldn't be writers without it. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to look in the chat, some things, some comments that we've been getting. Judy talked about uh, switching protagonists three times in essentially the same story. In a book that I have just been finishing, some of you guys have, have heard me say that I actually took my protagonist out, which was the best thing I ever did for the novel, even though that was really, really scary. But it also got me excited at the same time. It was, again, that feeling of nervousness and anxiety, but excitement at the same time. Um, she says that she was told that she still has too much about the original protagonist who is now an important secondary character and love interest that can, I mean, the issue is when you are taking things apart that you will introduce new problems. Um, so, but you're, you're always awake to the book. You're always awake to the changes. I, I oftentimes, uh, and I might've on this podcast before, I, I generally talk about this idea of a mountain, um, a road that goes over a mountain in the process of writing your book. Um, you are traveling up that mountain and you cannot see what's beyond the road ahead of you. All, all you can see is the mountain. And so you can't see what is on the other side at all. You can't see if it's going to work out. You can't see that it's going to land, but there is a point in revision that you will hit the top of the mountain and you'll be able to see everything before you. And that there is a certain comfort in that. But again, that's also when the choices of the novel that you're working on have broken down. There is one road at that point. And, and right now, when you can't see the road ahead of you, it can feel like there's many, many roads. Um, some other people has talked about... Um, you know, suggesting, can you take a step back and do some free write or talk to someone who knows um, your novel about their vision of the whole of it? 
So you have some big picture to zoom out from time to time. What I do is when I start getting really nervous that my book is falling apart in big picture time, I will spend a day where I take a step back and I look at it as a whole, um, breaking it down scene by scene. Um, visually, you can have all those scene cards on your wall. Um, I've also cut across, cut a paragraphs apart and put them all over my floor, some visual way of looking at it. Another, you know, Scrivener is actually very good visually for visual learners. So trying to kind of step back and get a sense of what is the book becoming as I'm doing these close nuts and bolts thing. It's very, very helpful. And I feel like it can make you feel like you, you've got your feet on the road again um, and that you've got a plan. And then you can go back in the next day. There's, I don't think there's, there's a problem with taking a step out again and moving some things around and going back in. I actually recommend it. Um, another of our writers says, I cover a wall in post-its. The timeline goes down the wall. The characters are color-coded. One post-it for each character in a scene. Moving them around works for me, proudly marching into the second half of the 20th century. Yes. I mean, as Hess was saying, whatever of these systems works for you. And you know, there's, there is Save the Cat, but Save the Cat freaks out any number of people. Um, because she will say, you should have this kind of scene at the 48th percent Point. And she's going off of, of film writing and film writing is very, very prescriptive in terms of what you need where. Um, and so a lot of people, they just are not going to function that way and they need to work much more um, uh, through just their intuition. And so taking that step back and looking at your book intuitively can be helpful or finding other structures that you can pin it to can be helpful. Whatever structures uh, you want to look for, um, I recommend it just to kind of give you, again, the bird's eye view. Um, and then there's other comments in the chat about there's madness to being an artist. I know some people don't like the word mad or crazy or stuff. I, I say, let's own it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> let's own it. Let's do it. Um, uh, because who <clears throat> wants to be normal? I, I don't. Okay. So let's go on to our next last question and we'll keep going back to a lot of these things. Here we go. This is Allison. Good morning, Michelle. Uh, it's six o'clock my time here in Switzerland, which is midnight over there. And I just want to say, I love your podcast and I love always listening to Hess Phillips. What's holding me back is my revision. I'm in my revision and I keep finding more things I want to add, more things I want to say, but I now am up to 400 plus pages and I know revision isn't adding, revision is revising and I'm just stuck as to what to do and where to go. Uh, yesterday I pulled out Save the Cat and now I'm physically plotting out on my living room floor uh, to see if that works. But if your panelists have any better ideas, I'm really willing to, willing to listen. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. And has, oops, S has got a fan. I'm sure Sarah will have a fan soon. Um, Hi, Allison. Allison's a friend of mine. Yes. Is <laughs> adding not revision is what I want to ask. Hess, what do you think? She says, I know revision isn't adding. Yeah. So I am, I, I, full disclosure, I'm familiar with Allison's book and I, I know what she's going through right now um, because I, I've seen it through various stages. 
But um, yeah, I, I understand the impulse to want to keep adding things. This this is something that also happens to me in revision. Um, I start to get ideas and, ooh, this would be an interesting thing to have happen here. And the next thing you know, I've actually added work to the word count instead of uh, chop, chopped off the dead weight. Um, so it, it's definitely... Uh, the temptation is there to do that. Um, but I think that's partially where the, the this whole idea of um, keeping track of your different uh, versions comes into play as being very useful. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, you can sort of write out those ideas for things that you might want to add at some point, but maybe not put it in the, the actual manuscript, maybe put it aside, save it for, for something else to go over later, because maybe it will actually be useful to you in some way. Um, there will, there will be trade-offs, you know? Um, and, and that's part of it is that if you come up with a brilliant new idea for a scene, um, it's going to probably replace another scene in the end. Uh, you might not be able to see exactly how just yet, but you're not going to know how until you've actually written it. So I think it's part of it's part of the process that you're going to end up creating more along the way. Um, but in the end, and and the end might not be in sight yet. <laughs> you know, it's hard to know when you're when you're there. It, I think maybe what you how you know when you're there is when you are actually at the point where you feel yourself paring back and going, oh, I don't need this. This isn't important. This is this is not really telling the story more effectively. So maybe that's that's the point you have to work towards rather than work in, if that makes sense. <laughs> Sarah? I think that um, it probably depends on what the goal is for if it's for publication or not. So and I think it also depends on what the work is. I do not know. Um, Allison at all so that I can give like a just very like removed from the situation um, response but I think it's, it's actually really important to know what kind of work you're working on and what your goal for it is um, so if your goal is like is your is it publication because you want to make money um, because then you should not be writing literary fiction for example like I write literary fiction and I made piece that I'm going to have to keep my day job forever um, but the reason I'm bringing that up is that literary, I'm about to teach an intro to creative writing class today. I was pulling together all my graphics, like the difference between commercial work or one of the differences between commercial work and literary work is that commercial fiction or commercial yeah, fiction tends to um, operate more on a formula. That's what readers want. Like it's comforting. They want that formula. Um, so I'm not, so I'm going to say two things. I'm sorry. I'm going to have so many thoughts at once. Um, so the formula in literary fiction there isn't as much as a formula. However, you still have to stay, stay connected into the ideas of conflict and you have to stay connected and like it's almost you have to plug into the electric current of your work. So in for the novel that I'm working on now, that's hopefully going to go back again, like again to my agent who keeps being like, this is good, but it's not working. And like, well, why isn't working? Someone fix it for me, please. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but what I realized when I had took some time back from it is that even though it's literary fiction, even though I'm like, look at the amazing paragraphs I have written and rewritten. So I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure we're always taking away. I think we can be adding, but once you add, you're going to end up taking something else out in my, in my experience. So it's like I said, it's about an either this 
point of view is like an eco-terrorist and she's talking about what it's like to be in the desert and what she's an ethnographer and what this all means. I was like, but I said the same thing like six times. All six were really good and beautiful. Thank you very much. I'm just a beautiful writer. Thank you. But I was like, nobody wants to read this six times. They want to read it once in the best way. And so I think that can be hard. And I think, again, the reason I asked is like, what is your goal? Because I remember I had a, on my first novel, I had an agent who was interested in it and it was 120,000 words, but I'm like an unknown writer. The sweet spot's 85,000, even for literary fiction, right? So now that's not a hard, fast rule, but if you are running around with a 200,000 word manuscript and it's super important to you to get that published by a traditional publisher or independent press, you're going to have to ask yourself, like, what am I willing to do? If that's not your goal, um, then I think you can do a lot more. Um, it just depends. And I think I like that I don't know her because it's like, I have no idea what her goal is. But yeah, does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I do think, I do think where you're at in the process, what your final goal is, um, and understanding where to go from there. I mean, I um, I recently put uh, my whole Scrivener thing, I, I compiled it all and I made the mistake of not compiling just the the front manuscript that I was working on or the, the top version that I was working on. And my the compilation was with all my different versions and notes and everything was over 950,000 words. And actually I, I broke the word count. So it was actually longer than that. Um, so I had just so much material, so much material. At the same time, when I draft a book, I tend to, I tend to go over things too quickly. And so what I have to do is actually add. And, and, and maybe there's a difference between adding and deepening, because I think a lots of times what we need to do is deepen and to then get rid of the stuff that's not helping you do that or get rid of the extra of the storyline. I call that reducing the sauce so that you can pay attention to what remains and so that you can continue to deepen that and deepen that. Um, but sometimes you might be going off on one tangent or going off on another tangent. Um, oh, I'm interested in this. Oh, I'm interested in that. Um, just to figure out what the parameters of your book is going to be and to figure out what your book is and what it isn't. Um, so, and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is basically a reverse outline. And I have heard of agents and editors that have asked their writers to do a reverse outline of their book in order to better revise it. So what is a reverse outline? It means that you are actually writing it after you've done, you, you're outlining it after you've done, written the book. Um, and so it can be an outline form um, I don't particularly like outline form because that feels very static to me. And it's just kind of a list on a page. And I don't really like that. Um, you can do it in a graph. You can do it in cards. For me, cards are more physical and tangible. And so that's, I like that better. Um, Matt Bell also talks about in his Refuse to be Done, uh, doing up a narrative outline. Um, so it's kind of a summarized version of the book in narrative. Um, I like to have a form that's very different. I, I like to have it visual and not narrative because I feel like I otherwise get too, too caught up in the narrative. And what he's looking for, what you're looking for are just those moments of where does this thing really tick? What's most alive? What is most emotional? What is most hot? And if you have large expanses of the book where it just feels dead and gone, you probably need to get rid of those um, and or that readers are just not responding to. And I tell you, once you get rid of that stuff, it is so 
freeing and allows you to spend the rest of your energy on everything else. Um, okay, we're going to have to go, but I'm going to give these guys, I'm going to give Sarah and Hess one last word. So Sarah and Hess, I'm also going to ask you after I do the little final wrap up thing, I'm going to ask you if you have any final words about breaking through on a revision. Um, everyone else, you can find everything that we're up to on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We just do, we love writing challenges. So this is our third one and we're just probably just gonna keep doing them. If you like what we're doing, please follow, rate and review our podcast so we can find other listeners. Okay, Hess, I could see you open your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Any final words? <laughs> oh my gosh, this flies by so quickly. I yes. so I, I really wanted to one thing I wanted to discuss that didn't get brought up, and maybe I'll just mention it very quickly here is this idea of story structures, um, like Save the Cat, for example, because we had two callers mention Save the Cat. And um, I just wanted to say essentially there's a whole world of story structures out there that are not save the cat um save the cat has a particular tyranny on the minds of writers at the moment for some reason and that's fine because it does work for some people but i i there are a lot of others so please look them up there's you know classics like the hero's journey there's freytag's pyramid which i tend to write in without even realizing i'm writing in it um, and they all work differently and, in, and to different degrees for different genres. Um, some are more appropriate for genres than others. Freytag's Pyramid is more appropriate for, say, tragedy. Um, a Fichtean Curve is more appropriate for, say, comedy or horror. Um, so think about different kinds of structures that you can look at because they are very useful tools to start from and then break the rules they give you because you'll need to. <laughs> Absolutely. Matt Salise actually brings up a number of other structures because he references, um, I think, East Asian structures. And then there's also some Japanese structures, uh, one in particular that's used in kind of a four part series and a lot of magna um, comics, but you can also use it in novel form or other story form. So search out whatever makes sense for your fits for a perfect a particular project because. These are all just, they're just little rulers that you can put up next to your book to kind of get a sense, well, how do I really feel about this? And 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 you, you need to, if you can match it up to something hard and true and concrete, you can kind of at least, it's, it's at least a mirror to what you're doing and can allow you to see the book better, even if you choose to do something entirely different at the end. Sarah, what do you think? Um, I agree with that very much is the finding your own way of thinking about structure and then breaking the rules. Cause again, back to my creative the creativity studies theories, like that you're, you're always altering something. You can't alter all of it. You can't do it without understanding the form first. Um, but I really like what Talia said in the chat. She um, said, literary fiction can be well-structured and com commercial fiction can be beautifully written. And I couldn't agree more. I think that we have to be careful about like me being like, well, it's just that words are really important to me. And I just, I'm just a really beautiful writer because at the end of the day, if the reader doesn't want to move through my work, um, if they don't want to stay with my chapters and my, my, you know, and my goal is probably, you know, is for people to read it and also to be like, um, yeah, so that doesn't matter. But so something I was going to say that I didn't believe for a while, but then someone said it to me because you know how people will say, oh, you've been with your work so long, you can't hear it anymore. That's true for a bit, 
But then when you put it down and come back to it, you can usually hear it pretty well. And I don't remember who said this, um, but it was like, if the reading, if the writing is boring you, like I wrote a book where we wrote these books for so long, for years and years and years sometimes, if it bores me, it will bore the reader. Cause I have a vested interest in that, in that piece. Like if I'm making myself listen to it, someone else or like read it, someone else might not. So what I have found is like, I will often listen to my work. Cause when I get really tired, like I'll have play it on, like have a um, word, read it to me or my notes app, read it to me. Um, and what I find is like, there are passages where I'm listening to it the same way I would to my aspirational books. Like it's coming to me the same way. Like I'm with it. I'm sticking with it. I'm not, I'm like actually listening to the story. And there's other parts where I like space out a lot or I'm like, oh, this is really boring. I don't want to read this. So with a grain of salt, I say like you become your own best editor and you listen to that. And if it's not working, I just put it in my little hoarder's pile and leave it there where it's very safe. No one's going to take it, but it's, but we don't need it and let go of it. I hope that made sense. Absolutely. And then luckily there's no show about, writing hoarders um, so that we can stay and, and keep doing our, our bad behaviors and no one knows about it. Um, some Another book that people mentioned, I just want to repeat this for the podcast, is Jane Allison's Meander Spiral and Explode. That she introduces a number of different kinds of structures. So I would absolutely look at that as well. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah and Hes. You're fabulous, as always. And I hope everyone else is able to get back to your writing desk. I hope you're able to enjoy yourself a little bit. Is that possible? I think that's possible. Good luck and good writing.